Hi, this is Helen, and thank you for joining me for a cup of teal. Teal is shorthand for the future of work. It means bringing your whole self to work, a focus on purpose and self-management. And this podcast is a chat over a cup of tea with the people who are making this happen in health, care and public services. Stories of self-management in action. I am always on the lookout for organisations in health and care who are exploring different ways of working. So when Corporate Rebels tagged Dan and Chorus in a tweet with me, I wanted to find out more. Chorus are exploring better ways of working that express their values and philosophy after a merger of three organisations into one. They're starting with what inspires them. And what I love about this podcast is hearing about how Dan and Chorus are using design principles and the difference that this has made to Dan personally and in his role as CEO. Dan, it's great to be sitting across the world and having an opportunity to talk together about what you're doing and what you're exploring at Chorus. So please, could you introduce yourself and your organisation? Yeah, lovely to uh, virtually meet you, Helen. Um, my name's Dan Minchin. Um, I guess the reason we're talking is I'm the CEO of an organisation called Chorus, but before that, I am a father and a husband and a brother and a citizen of the world and citizen of Perth, which is um, very isolated from much of the world, but we've got some um, really interesting opportunities here. Chorus is, a, um, I guess, a social care organisation. I wish I had different words to describe it. Um, I don't really like to talk about care particularly and I don't think social kind of captures it um, but we're in we're in the business of um, supporting people to live their best possible life in the community and we're the product relatively recently of a merger of three smaller organizations into one kind of medium-sized organization there's about 600 staff employees and about a similar number of actively engaged volunteers and of course there's um, five to ten thousand people we support around Perth and regional Western Australia. Thank you. And what journey are you on, Dan? I know that sounds a strange question, but our early conversation was talking about a period of exploration. Can you tell me what that means and, and what you're doing? Yeah, so right now we are, I guess, is a real, in a real period of flux and, and real trial and error about better ways of working. And so, you know, I know a lot of the people you chat to, Helen, talk about self-management and I wouldn't say that at the moment we're explicitly pursuing a self-management strategy or organisational form, but we start from a, a very, very similar philosophy uh, around enabling people to, to live their best self at work. And we believe that that's an important stepping stone in enabling people to live their best lives in the community, so the people we work with. Um, so we can't really expect to create an environment for people we support to, um, to live their best lives if we don't have a way of doing that within the organisation. Uh, the other reason we're in this period of flux is that you know, this, this merger of three into one happened um, about three years ago now, um, but it was a sort of a full-scale uh, full merger. No, no one uh, was bigger than the other. There was no sort of obvious first amongst equals that we could just hook the others onto. So we've literally been kind of like a startup at the same time as being a medium-sized organisation. So the integration effort has been huge. The change load has been huge, which has occupied a lot of our time. But in parallel with all of that, we've sort of recognised the opportunity to 
work differently and trying to sort of grab all of this, um, this fluidity as an opportunity. So where have you started with your exploration and learning? What have you been reading? Who have you been talking to? Where have you been visiting? Yeah, I guess uh, when I started, so I started as the CEO of this, this organisation, which didn't have a name at the time. We didn't have a new name anyway. And the mandate really going in and from my board was that we weren't merging just to do something that was a bigger version of what we were doing before. It was to do something different. In that first year, we really just looked internally and, and, and talked within the organisation and said, what is it that is special? What is it about you know, almost sort of a discuss, journey of self kind of discovery? And very rapidly, uh, we didn't even go particularly deep, but it became apparent that the things that really inspired us from within the organisation were when we were doing really great work that was deeply grounded in the communities we worked in. So we didn't see ourselves as providers of care and deliverers of services, even though on the surface that's what it looks like. And that's certainly why the, the funding and program structures we work within conceive of us as sort of a large-scale transactional service delivery organisations. But the things that really inspired us were the, the connections and relationships we can form with the community. So we came up with this name of Chorus, and, and sort of the idea was, well, individually I'm just one voice, but together we're a chorus. And we wrote ourselves a bit of a manifesto that talked about pushing back against the system which was transactionalising services and care and identified that people live their best life when they are connected and when they are in, in established and authentic relationships. And not only is the system working against that, but sort of the whole socio-economic, political trend was in the other direction. It was towards isolation and separation and individualisation and all that sort of stuff. So we just had this statement really, was that, well, let's look at the world as an opportunity to create you know, harmony, to sort of overplay the, overplay the name. Um, so to begin with, it was a sort of internal exercise. Um, and then that became a stake in the ground. And to my board, particularly my board's absolute credit, while we all got very, very busy with the hard nuts and bolts of integrating three organisations and technology and structure and employment contracts and finance systems and all that sort of stuff, there was a polite but nagging kind of pressure to what is this difference we're making? And we had a catch line in our early marketing that was we were bringing a fresh approach to community service. So we got to talking about what the fresh approach meant. Um, so then as a, I guess as I, we and I in particular got to put my head above water a little bit, we started to tap into what we could see around the world. Just to reiterate, often within, right within our organisation, we, for example, we have a, a centre down in an in a outlying suburb of Perth called Mandurah where people living with disability can come and do art of various forms, visual arts and performance arts. And this thing had just kind of grown uh, organically, almost in spite of the system. Uh, and the joy and the connection and the purpose that happened, not just for the people we're supporting, but for the, our colleagues and, our, and the volunteers, was just written on every wall and written on every, every face. And so we have little sources of inspiration that all around the organisation. Um, but, yeah, then we started to look further afield. Um, where did you go first? Well, I'm, I'm not sure if I can quite remember. <laughs> we, um, I guess I had an awareness of Burtzog, for example, uh, the, where I worked previously was in community nursing and home nursing, and, and Birdsog was always sort of talked about. So I certainly started reading a bit about that. Um, someone gave me a copy of Lalu very early. We um, 
again, somewhere on the line, we got introduced to corporate rebels out of the Netherlands. In fact, I think the connection there was via someone in Perth um, named Kate Fulton, who's part of the Avivo organisation, which in terms of its sort of mix of the kinds of work it does is very similar to Chorus. And they'd been on this path for some time around um, autonomous teams and self-managing teams and things like that. And I think Kate might have made the connection to, to Yost and Pim from Corporate Rebels. And then one of my teams sort of cold called them and said, would they come and visit when they were next in Australia, which they did. So we started really just dipping our toe into this idea that there's a better way of working and uh, we can create a work environment where people can really thrive and be their best self and, and recognising that traditional ways of working almost always the opposite of that. And so I did, I went and I uh, got to spend some time in the Netherlands and I met Joster Block and got to see that story up, up close and personal. I went across to the UK and visited with a, a town in Somerset called Froome, um, who some of your listeners are probably aware of the kind of community connection and compassion program that they've run there, which is, seems to be having a really material impact on people's health and well-being, and ultimately on the health system. Um, and so that was a, that was very different. It wasn't, I mean, I guess it was kind of a self-managing kind of environment, but it was more about stimulating uh, community to play a role, a very simple role in many ways, connecting people to each other and to support where it might exist and, um, and training volunteers, I guess, in the community to become community connectors. And so all of this stuff kind of started to swirl around and then back to my board who on my case about helping us articulate and we just kept sort of hammering this out and finding this inspiration. And then probably about a year ago, um, a couple of things happened. One was I found Hilary Cottom on, uh, online and uh, very inspired, got a copy of her book, very inspired by the sort of work she was doing around uh, building capability rather than meeting need and, and just working outside or kind of break the system of, of welfare um, that actually disempowers people and costs money and, and seems to perpetually not really deliver a result. So I went and bought 20 copies of that book and said, yep, I think this fresh approach looks a lot like this. Obviously, in the Australian context, it needs to be different. And then, you know, as the sort of, as again, a little bit as the smoke started to clear on our, um, on our integration work, or almost in parallel with building what we call Chorus version 1.0, we figured we needed to sort of cast the line out in, closer to the horizon and, and think about what Chorus version 2.0 might look like. And um, so put together a business case to develop, to sort of be methodical in exploring all these sources of innovation and say, what are the key elements of a, of a different way of working? What are the key elements of a fresh approach? Um, what might Chorus version 2 look like? And so we put that together. My board puts the money in. The Lotteries Commission in Western Australia has matched our own investment. And that program's now up and running, kind of incubator style. Um, so connected to Chorus, but somewhat insulated from the day-to-day. And so all of those things, you know, and that becomes a very rich source of capturing this inspiration and this, this philosophy that recognises that if we're going to be serious about settling ourselves in the community and supporting people in a different way, we need to work differently and actually we need to be different, which I think is probably the most important insight of the whole thing. I don't know where that takes us. Um, right at this moment, we're doing a combination of that incubator work which is very concentrated and somewhat isolated and then within the chorus version one we're unpicking and exploring sort of real empowering and authentic ways of working but it's it's pretty unstructured it's fair to say right now so you've got 
part of the organization that's acting as, as an incubator. How big is, is that part of the organization and what kind of things are you trying there? So that's, that's very small, I would say, at the moment. It's, it's sort of the first um, stage of experimentation. Um, so it's not, really op- it's not really operational yet. It's sitting a, alongside of a centre where we, where we operate in suburban Perth. And it's really taking, well, what do we think from what we've seen? For example, at, at the heart of it, like I've just said before, it's about the, the nature of the relationship we establish. So what... Again, a little bit channeling uh, Hillary Cotton. You know, what if we work more in a more relational way? What, what do we have to do to free um, you know, frontline colleagues from the, some of the barriers that get in the way and, of being really relational? And what might be possible with that nature of, of working? Another, another question we're asking is what scale of community do we need to work at? If we're really going to see ourselves as a facilitator and an activator of communities, well, what scale does that look like? Our, our hunch is that it's quite small. Um, so, you know, it's a, it's, it's a postcode, which in Perth might have 10,000 people living there. Um, it might be no more than 50 streets. Um, and maybe we need to work at an even smaller scale. So we, we've got some people on the ground trying to get things to activate. And we're testing what scale works, what sort of activities do people look into. We, we know that the arts often a really good way of coming together for people who are seeking to become more engaged in community. We know that food is often a big thing, whether it's producing it, or cooking it, or just sharing it. And then there's another dimension, which is kind of the business dimension, which says, well, we've got to run this, we've got to find a way of working which is financially sustainable. And what has to be true, you know, what can we generate out of our existing kind of programs, what more might, what other kind of partners and funding partners might come to the party. So when you start operating at a local level, you get interest from local government, local business groups, local shopping centres and the like who, who don't, you don't normally engage with if you're sort of looking at things as a, a pyramid of, of military-style service delivery. Um, so we're just exploring what alternative sources of funding or, or not, not even funding, just partnership, connections, referrals from the local hospital or the local GP or relationships with um, with a local high school I mean there's a high school just within this in this area that we're working um, that has all sorts of really interesting what they call outreach type programs which as far as I can see are not particularly they find it difficult to find points of connection there's so much appetite for it there's so much uh, resources that are available but they don't connect Um, so we're experimenting with the way we work at 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 an individual level and a relational level the way we work at a community level and the way we um, need to make it work from a sort of business perspective. The idea being that by the middle of this year, we'll have a, a dossier of what we've learned, worked, what didn't work, um, which ideas were turned out to be not very clever and which ideas uh, popped up that we hadn't even thought of. Um, and then we'll think about trying to scale that into a sort of almost like a mini business unit, much more operational next year. But it's probably straddling that pure theory and into on the ground practice, but in a sort of, in a very, very much a laboratory type way of working. We're not wanting to make it sound quite so clinical, but it's that, it's that kind of scale. Meanwhile, the whole organ, rest of the organisation is you know, carrying on. Tell me a bit more, Dan, about how that looks in, in practice. So for example, did you take 10 people who are inspired by this and give them some training and support and say, 
go and test out different things. Tell me about the, mm. the mm. detail of what that looks like for organisations who might be inspired to follow your example. Give it a crack, yeah. Well, it, it probably started um, with myself, conversations with my board, a couple of members of my team and some, and some external people who, who were like-minded and brought a real um, a design way of thinking, a very progressive mindset. Uh, there's an, a partnership, a partner organisation who we're working with at the moment called Knowledge Society, who are again locally based, and, and I've actually known on and off over the years. So the first sort of job was to try and crystallise what we're on about. One member of the organisation, in fact, she's the company secretary. Um, so maybe not the first classic stereotype of a company secretary, but but uh, Jane sort of leapt in and said, "Well, let's pull all this together." And we started to formulate a theory, and it was really it was really just a theory. So this is about a year ago now. So the first piece of work was to turn that into a plan of attack. And I guess what makes it less risky sounding, I mean, it could, it could be completely off the, off the wall, but what we realised was that if we start with those founding principles and we learn from what we've seen around the world and we're diligent about that, if we give these things a go, we'll rapidly realise what works and what doesn't. It almost didn't matter where we started. We figured we'd get useful intel. And we were really going back to some, I mean, this is one of the things that we say, this is not an innovation program because we're not creating anything new. In fact, if anything, we're going back to find, you know, the, the, the basic principles of what, what makes a good life. I mean, Aristotle talked about it 2,000 years ago, right? So this is not new thinking. What's new is trying to apply it in the current context in Perth, Western Australia. So that was the first step. And then um, the usual organisational process of writing a business case and convincing my, my board to fund it out of our own, our own resources and our own balance sheet and also to go to the Lotteries Commission who are very supportive and have just been a fantastic um, partner in this. And once we, we knew we had the, the money, then we did go out to our organisation and we sought interest from people. And so we, identif- we sort of came up with a team structure for this incubator, if you like, um, we had a, we wanted someone to be a, co, a co-designer and they would come in and become full-time and learn how to do design, human-centred design. That was our sort of assumption. Uh, we needed a, a lead, uh, so who was almost like a project manager. Uh, we needed some administrative support. And then we outsourced, mostly um, we went out to market and we found a partner, again, Knowledge Society. Um, we were able to bring in people with design experience, with um, the more strategic view uh, we have, we've got a guy in there who's really helping us tell the story. We're, we haven't quite produced much yet, but in some video, um, we have this idea of sort of mini, mini documentary style communications, just tell the story and share the story. So that was the sort of team that we had in mind. And then we had, um, I think we started with about 10 work streams, which became seven, something like that. And um, we went out to the organisation and said, who'd like to be involved? From memory, remember we got about... 40 or 50 people who sort of indicated some level of interest. A number of them came along to a kind of info session and then about half of them have ended up hooked into a design stream or design team with a 12-week program of, for example, particularly that one around relational working I talked about before. We wanted to get people to talk about what is the real day in the life of a frontline colleague and then what would we like it to be and what would create sort of personas and different ways of working and we'll be able to test them with with colleagues, but also with um, uh, with people we support, 
Um, and that's just one example. So people have sort of opted in. They, they, they were able to negotiate with some support from me, I guess, with some permission, I guess, from me, but not much more than that. Just to say, negotiate your availability. Um, and they were able to come in and spend some time with us in these, in these design streams. So yeah, the idea is we have lots of sort of granular real-life experience at the same time as some sort of more um, specialist, I guess, support and trying to get that balance right between the, the specialist and the, and the realist. Um, I think if you have only realists in the room, you sort of don't necessarily push the envelope. And if you have only specialists, then it all becomes rather um, esoteric and disconnected from reality quite quickly. So... So that's how people are getting involved in the incubator. So there's probably three or four people who are almost full-time in there and then um, about another 20 or 30 who are involved in a sort of an occasional kind of way. And I know this sounds a bit like a test, but can you tell us what the seven streams are, Dan? Can you, do they trip up? <laughs> <laughs> uh, what, I can, what I can tell you is what the clusters are, right? Um, so um, the, the first is around the core work, which is very similar to the work we do now, which is around the individual service relationship. And we believe we can reinvent the individual service relationship. So even if we did nothing else, uh, we believe we can, we can find a way to, to enable people to interact on a much more human and relational kind of way. So that's the first cluster. The second is around, I guess I think we're calling it something like community activation. So how do we become not just a service provider but a community facilitator what works what's the uh, the question of scale is one in there we're very conscious of the fact that if we make this all about ourselves this isn't going to work this needs to be about the suburb now the suburb we're talking about is called bull creek postcode 6149 right so mm -hmm. it needs to be about bull creek first and about chorus if not not even second and we're in there we're facilitating and we're supporting but the minute we make it about ourselves, it isn't going to work. Um, and that's, so that's the community activation kind of strand. The third one is the cluster I talked a little bit before around the, um, the sort of the partnerships and, the, and the, um, ultimately with the funding kind of orientation. But equally, you know, we've had conversations in the last couple of months with uh, local government. Now, in, in, in our context, local government's never going to be a source of substantial funding, um, but they are quite likely to be a if nothing else, a moral supporter and a contributor to our network and we are contributing to theirs. So that's that third bit. And then the, the fourth cluster is how do you pull that together in a organisational sense? And for me, really the key question is there, what does leadership look like in that future state? It needs to be able to handle operational side of things. It needs to be able to handle business questions. It needs to be able to activate at a community level. And it needs to operate in, a, in an autonomous way because ultimately that's what this whole thing is going to hang on. So our sort of picture of the future is of hyper-local business, mini business units with a different kind of leadership in the middle of it. I'm not saying this is one individual. I'd be surprised if there is one individual who could do all of these things. Uh, but it is a different kind of leadership that starts from being a different kind of person at work, more like the person you are at home. Thank you. And of course, that resonates with the bring your whole self to work ethos and, and thinking that's part mm. of self-management and, and Teal. So any early learnings, any surprises so far? I don't think so, really. Um, most of the learnings, have we're really probably only about six months into this incubator type program. We're about halfway into this sort of program. So most of the learnings have been about how we get that to run at the right kind of pace. 
with too much consultation and involvement, we couldn't see how we were going to get there fast enough and we couldn't see how we were necessarily going to keep our eye on the ball of the sort of the, the ultimate business and organisational model kind of question. Not enough consultation and, like I said earlier, this becomes top-down and we become arrogant in our, in our thinking and I certainly couldn't design this myself from, 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 the, you know, from the office with the windows sort of thing. So it's more, it's more been about trying to get that balance right and we've probably found we needed to narrow the scope of involvement in the short term, um, which we may look back on and, and regret. I'd, I'd like to come back in a minute and talk about how we're trying to consciously or subconsciously inject some of this thinking into the chorus version one, the, the core mm-hmm. organisation. I'll come back to that in a sec. So that's been, a, that's been a thing. I think discovering that the community facilitator type person is often not the really operational type person and may, may in turn not be the business, the sort of social entrepreneur type person. Because I think for these things to work, it's going to need at least those kind of three ingredients. So we've actually tried to identify some people and almost, this is a terrible expression, but almost trying to come in with a, with a, a human prototype of a particular way of working because we realise that the people model the roles that exist are going to have to, they're all part of what we're trying to test. Mm-hmm. So we've got somebody in who's got a really strong community development background. Now, whether she'll turn out to have the sort of entrepreneurial flair required to pull in the money to support this or whether she's going to have the operational instinct to, to sort of support people to, to, to work in a consistent and safe way, I don't really know. So that, that's an interesting um, kind of question. Equally, have some, we have some sensational surprises. I mean, in an organisation like ours, just probably like most of those that the people listen to this podcast have, you know, you put out the word and find and ask for volunteers to put their hand up and you just find this incredible richness and, and people who are working in, you know, in support, frontline support type roles or administrative type roles and, and you, you see what they've got inside of them and you go, what are, how wrongly are we setting ourselves up? How, how poorly are we designing our organisations if someone like that person was sort of never able to express this before. There's just gold in it. The young um, woman who put her hand up for the sort of co-designer role, which has kind of evolved, it's not even really a co-design role, not even sure what I'd describe it. Um, But she came out of our um, our disability employment support service where she did some great work. But the breadth of her value add here is just a whole nother level. And every person you get involved with, you know, you sort of, it just blows up your, stereotype of what people might have to, to offer. So that's been a really nice surprise and it gives me lots of optimism that this is what your whole podcast is about, Helen, right? You know. <laughs> we, uh, we're all uh, discovering all of this together, uh, I think. Yes, yes. That's beautiful. What, what, what a, a wonderful insight and surprise as, as you described there. So let's circle back, as you say, Chorus 1.0. What, what are you learning and trying there? Yeah, so in, in the job of, like, just forget about where we're trying to head for a second. Just, just picture trying to bring three organisations together. It's like, a, it's like a rebirth, right? Mm-hmm. So there was no obvious template to follow. Um, there was no standout technology. There was no standout business process. No one had the, the best um, operating system. Um, so we had to kind of work this out on our, on our own. And one of the things we discovered, I discovered, this is, my, this is my first time job as a CEO, so I'd never been one before. 
and I sort of come into this organisation and you have all of these expectations and think of myself needing to have all of the answers and, and all that sort of stuff. And very quickly get the rude awakening that you simply can't have all the answers and if, if I thought that that was my job, I was going to fail. Not, not just because I would blow up, but I would have, um, but just because it doesn't work. What we realised in some of the really basic things we tried to do was we absolutely had to get people involved in the decision-making and ask them, invite them to opt in to the solutions that were developed. Um, so an early one we did was we had three different um, sets of employment arrangements. Everyone had a different contract. A lot of things were not written down. Um, we tried a uh, beautiful uh, consulting word, harmonise, and got a very negative reaction from some, some parts of the organisation because we just hadn't understood the variation. And, of course, you're mucking around with people's pay and the conditions and so we had to sort of put the handbrake on that and I actually called a critical incident as if, you know, as if we'd been flooded for example and just said let's start again and get to the bottom of where we're at here and so what I learned out of that and my team learned I mean, my, my sort of leadership team I guess has been so sort of affected by experiences like that to realize that if we don't bring people in even even if we brought everyone in the room we still wouldn't have got the right answer but people would have felt like they were part of it rather than having something forced upon them. And again, like I said, you know, these are lessons, people have learned these lessons before, right? So I had to go through it myself. And so that was the sort of the start of it. And, and so you have experiences like that happening at the same time as seeking this inspiration of what we've called the fresh approach, a different way of working. And these things kind of come together and you realise that an organisation where people feel empowered, uh, where people feel in, like they have some degree of self-determination, where hierarchy is not a thing, where fear is not a thing, would be the best kind of organisation. That was the kind of starting of it. And just on our recent, you know, sort of culture survey, and again, the single biggest piece of feedback that our colleagues give us is that they don't feel informed about changes that are happening at work. So we're not very good at it. But what we're really working at is trying to build some of these conditions where we encourage people to bring their whole self to work. And we're doing it in the context of what is still a fairly traditional organisation design and against a backdrop of decades of hierarchical, centralised control. And so I suspect we'll probably find that whether it's Chorus 2.0 in the Fresh Approach or some other way, we'll have to start to become much more methodical about removing the organisational barriers to all this stuff, barriers to bringing your, your whole self to work. But in the meantime, we're sort of trying to do it out of sheer force of will. You know, we, we have our value, organisational values, and one of them is empowering. And I just don't think we do it very well. Uh, we certainly haven't historically. We talk, it's the one we talk most about within the leadership team. What does it really mean to be empowering? You know, if you walk in the door and you think you've got the answer, you're not empowering. If you are not alive to the fact that the person walking in the door across the other side of the table has made a whole bunch of assumptions about your uh, omniscience and, and uh, omnipotence, you're not empowering. Um, and it's incredibly difficult because, of course, all of us have been programmed in senior roles to sort of think we have to have the answer. So it's about going right to the heart of who we are as people being, you know, all of the characteristics and behaviours you expect to see in really progressive or, or, or even teal organisations, forthright, lots of feedback, very open and transparent as best we can be. A fairly radical example quite recently is 
my uh, exec team and I, you know, we had their salaries were all set in a very traditional kind of way, secretly, loosely coupled to a sort of a, a theory of remuneration, but high, very divergent salaries. And it didn't make me feel comfortable. And, and it so happened that the, the women on the team were paid less than the men as well. Um, and, and again, I can give you all of the reasons and the rationale behind why that, why that was so. But it didn't feel right. It didn't make me feel comfortable. So we worked together over six months to not just establish a degree of equity, but to actually do it transparently. So in the last three months, my team and I have sat in a room and they all can see what everyone's paid and they can all see the criteria that got them there. And they're very, very much closer to equivalence now. They, they vary because different levels of experience, different levels of cultural impact and leadership impact, I guess. But their roles are fundamentally being designed as equivalent uh, and their salaries are very close and completely transparent. It's been really uncomfortable. It's the most uncomfortable thing we've done. And I think everyone found it uncomfortable. And I'm, I'm not even quite sure whether it was the right call or whether we're there yet. Um, if you ask one of my guys, you'd probably find some of them would say they're still not completely convinced. But as an example, within the context of a traditional type organisation, we're having a crack at things like that and, um, you know, and, and then trying to embrace the discomfort that comes with it. You're so right. This is uncomfortable, challenging work. How has this changed you as a CEO and as a person, Dan? Because you mentioned this is your first CEO role and, and therefore you will have had a number of assumptions about that. So how are you different as a result of this, mm. this work you've been doing? Um, I'd like to say that I'm, I'm just trying to think of how to answer the question without s sounding incredibly egocentric, but I suppose it's an egocentric question. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> yes. Um, I mean, there's a sort of, there's a humility, right? And, and that sounds really weird, but I mean, even, even though you know, I read, I'd read the textbooks, I'd done the training, I'd, I know the theory of what authentic leadership kind of looks like. And I'd like to think I started in a reasonably self-aware kind of state, but I'm come, I've come a long way on that. It just teaches me that you just can't do this stuff out of your own brilliance and authority, you know, because you can't shift an organisation as one person. You can in the short run, uh, and, and it either comes at the cost to you yourself and your own well-being and your own health, or it comes at a medium-term cost to the organisation I have absolutely no doubt that the most toxic organisations start from an assumption of, of omniscience and not omnipotence, like I said before. And it's not where I started, but I, I just think some of those experiences have really taught me that. I have learnt about my instincts to try and control things and I'm really working hard to not do that. My family might disagree that I'm working hard on that. But that's mm -hmm. a, I try to bring those things home as well. Uh, and I think another thing that I've really learned, this, oh, this is actually probably the most sort of surprising for me in a way, is that trying to be nice to people and be liked by people is just about the most toxic thing you can do. And the reason that is, is this doesn't, make, this doesn't mean I should therefore be disrespectful to people, but if you can't speak up, with what's going on, if you can't share your thought, you can't provide your feedback in a clear way, it, people can't respond. They can't meet an expectation that's not been described. 
And I don't mean a CEO authority-driven expectation. This is the same in every relationship. If there's an expectation that's not been articulated, well, you can't expect somebody to meet it. And niceness and wanting to be liked is a, is a, is a, a bias of many people, particularly in our sector, uh, and, um, and I'm prone to it. Right? So trying to find a way of catching myself being nice, find, it's amazing how many excuses you find to not give feedback, to not make an observation. Um, and then at the same time, once I cross that threshold of giving the feedback, to do it in a way that's generative and constructive rather than being, you know, controlling and, and negative. And, of course, you know, like most people, I'm, I can operate at both extremes, but I find that middle ground difficult. So, so that's probably been my, my sort of experience of it. Thank you, because it's very easy for CEOs and, and senior people who are interested in this journey to think it's about introducing new processes and, and techniques without seeing the personal development element of it. And I know, you know, that, that sounds strange, doesn't it? But that's absolutely been your experience and been my experience and the experience of many, many of the people I've been podcasting with. So thank you for being so honest. What? Well, and I think it's I think it's essential if we're gonna if we're gonna discover this fresh approach and implement Chorus two point zero. I have big ambitions. I I have bold ambitions for the level of system impact we could create, far beyond the the sort of scale of our organisation. Right? It's going to require us to be a very different organisation, but it's an absolute heart. It requires us to be different, and that's kind of it. Thank you. That is the best place for us to finish. That is so powerful. Can I come back and uh, update this conversation with you in six months' time when perhaps you're on the other side of some of the experimentation and starting to work on the implications of that? I'd love to, uh, love to do that. If nothing else, it'll help me um, crystallise every now and again um, what this journey is actually doing to us all. <laughs> Great. Thank you so much, Dan. Thanks, Helen. Thank you for listening. I'd love to hear your reflections. Please tweet me. I'm at Helen at WB Teams. This podcast is a companion to Open Teams. On this podcast, we share the voices and stories of pioneering organizations in health, care and public services. And on Open Teams, you can see the documents that they're using. Have a look at openteams.co.uk. And if you're interested in wellbeing teams, please come and find me on LinkedIn where I share a weekly two-minute film or my blog site, helensanderson.net. And finally, if you're interested in self-management and need some support along the way, I'd love to hear from you. I'm at helen at wellbeingteams.org. Thank you.